Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Kokyo Henkel. So Kokyo, thank you so much for joining me today on the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you, Shoren, for inviting me. There are many ways we could begin this conversation, but I'm most interested right now in learning more about how you've become the spiritual nomad. And I'm wondering how your spiritual nomadic lifestyle started to arise for you. Well, I was living at Santa Cruz Zen Center for 10 years as a teacher there. And I'd been thinking for a while about about leaving there and trying something new. But really what sparked the move was my wife, Shoho, going to grad school in Nepal. So we left to actually move to Nepal and then the pandemic hit. So that started this kind of traveling lifestyle, which was not exactly planned, but has ended up that way for the past two years or so. And it's been a delightful surprise, actually, to not really have a plan of where to be living next. So you were not able to go to Nepal because of COVID? That's right. That's right. We weren't able to go. And and now Nepal is just opening. The school is just becoming in-person instead of online. And so we just decided not to go to Nepal after all, because it's been working out just fine to be wandering around America. <laughs> and so where have you been wandering to and through since, since you left Santa Cruz Zen Center? Well, first we went to Crestone, Colorado to do a originally three-month retreat on Sokni Rinpoche's land. He's one of our teachers. And thinking that after three months, the pandemic would be over and, and we could go on to Nepal. But of course, that wasn't the case. We ended up staying on in Crestone on that retreat land for a full year, pretty much in isolation. Crestone is a very remote, quiet town, retreat town already. And the pandemic made it even more so. Then came back to California when a lot of time was up in Preston, we had to move on. And so came back to California and with an invitation of an old Zen friend who needed a house sit and chicken sit in his garden sit. We stayed for a few months in his place while he was out of town on the North Coast. And, and then while there, then an invitation came from Mako at Austin Zen Center to, to come out there and lead the fall practice period. So ended up for half a year in Austin and then, then went back to Crestone for another three-month retreat because we could do another one on that retreat land. And then while we were there, an invitation came to come to Jikoji and live here and teach offer some sashin. So then we're here for a few months. And then while here, an invitation came to, to come to Green Gulch and, and fill in as this interim tanto. So we'll go there for a few months next. So really, it's, I've been in kind of a mode of a maybe itinerant preacher and just really responding to invitations to come to different Zen centers. And when there's no standing invitation than just doing retreat in other places and and in between places living in the car for weeks at a time. What type of car do you and Shoho, your wife, have? We have a Prius, uh, which actually makes a wonderful camper. I highly recommend it as a very low mileage and low profile kind of camper. It might be designed that way when you fold down the back seats. It's completely flat. You can put a futon in there. It goes right up to the front seats, but it's enough space. And then traveling with really everything that we need for several years fits into that car. When sleeping, you have to move it all to the front seats. That's the evening and morning ritual. 
uh, Tokyo, as you're speaking, I'm smiling because I just thought, what a great ad that could be for Prius. Yes, yes, these yes. two traveling Zen priests camping out in the back seat. It's quite comfortable. And there's actually a whole Facebook page of Prius camping. And oh. some people have designed a kind of a, we don't have one, but there's, there's a kind of a tent that you can fit over the hatchback to make with a, like a doorway so you can kind of stand up in the back. One disadvantage of Prius camping is that it's a little too low in the, the back bed area to actually sit up and sit zazen. And the front seats are not so great for zazen. So if it's raining or something, that's one disadvantage. Yeah, maybe you could reach out to Toyota and find out if A, you could get a sponsorship. They could somehow sponsor you. And perhaps you could also ask them for some type of addition they could put on the back where you could have like a, a Zazen platform on the back that's right. with some legs. Yeah. yeah, or maybe a pop top or something. <laughs> All right. Wow, I never heard of Prius camping. I'll have to check out that Facebook website. Well, let's, let's go back, back, back in history and talk a little bit about the origins of the wandering sadhu or holy man back in the time of, of the Buddha. And actually, that was one of the four heavenly messengers was that he saw a wandering ascetic when he was out of the palace grounds. So could you speak a little bit about the tradition of the wandering holy person in Buddha's time? That was the Buddha's lifestyle. And even in modern day, we call priest ordination leaving home. And uh, in the Buddhist time, it was very literal, leaving one's home and not setting up a new one. But I think the Buddha's later life, he was given different parks to kind of camp out in for longer periods. But in earlier years, he seemed to have no fixed abode and just wandered everywhere. And then uh, this practice continues in the modern day, like, Thai forest tradition. They have a practice called Chudong, which is the Thai way of transliterating Dutanga, which is like ascetic practices. And so in this Thai forest tradition, I think that it's, it's the usual thing. After five years as a monk or a nun, one is kind of kicked out of the monastery and into this practice of Chudong which is just wandering around Thailand or, or these days America. People are doing this with just a robes and a bowl. And as a practice, when I've talked to some of the monks, it's not so much that you're trying to get somewhere. It's just you're trying out that practice of, of having no fixed abode and relying on the kindness of others to, to get by. Which in Thailand, it often means staying in other monasteries, which are open to any wandering monks. So that's a, that's a modern-day Theravada monastic tradition. But one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen teachers, the late great Chatro, I heard that he has this practice. He himself did a lot of wandering around with a backpack in Tibet and I think India afterwards. And I've heard that he has recommended to his serious students the practice of not planning their life more than three months in advance. So Shoho and I have kind of taken up that practice somewhat by default and somewhat by intention of not knowing what we're going to do more than three months in advance generally. And then the practice is to not worry about that and just see what happens. And that's been a great practice. When you're mentioning the Thai forest tradition, I remember the story that I, I believe I read it in a still forest pool. It was teachings of Ajahn Chah. And there was an anecdote in there about Ajahn Chah not ever keeping any food like past the day that he was given it. And he was talking about refrigerators and how when you take food and you put it in a refrigerator, that gives your mind the idea that there's a future, that there's a tomorrow. I read that when I, while I was at Tassajara. I was like, I never thought about the way in which the mind's projection of the future has us creating certain things. 
I have to preserve my food. Of course, it's more convenient than every day going out and hunting and gathering. So there's that innovation that human beings are really wonderful at, which have also, of course, has led to a lot of destruction of our environment and each other. That was really fascinating to me when I read that about uh, refrigerator as an extension of the mind's projection about the future. <laughs> yes, yes. And not not storing things up. And if one doesn't really have an abode and has to be wandering, one has to travel pretty light or else it would be like very difficult. So the food comes when, when the monk gets to the next destination. We think of that as maybe kind of an extreme homeless lifestyle, but, but there are still Theravada monastics living that way today, even in, in the U.S. And then also, the, as far as the tradition goes, since the time of the Buddha, in, in the old days in China, the Zen monastics also wandered around. We have that. Uh, the Japanese term angya, which means um, foot traveling, it's kind of going on pilgrimage to meet teachers, traveling by foot in the old days, because that was the only way to do it. And maybe somewhat to, to meet teachers and receive new teachings. But also, I imagine, probably in the same spirit of walking and traveling, wandering as a practice itself to, to face whatever comes up unexpectedly as a practice. And then Dogen even has uses this term henzan, which means like wandering everywhere, <laughs> going to meet teachers everywhere. And he kind of redefines it as he usually does. But this term henzan really also means the Zen practice of, of without any boundaries, moving around the land and visiting teachers. Do you have anything anywhere else in storage? Like at your parents' houses or friends, is there like some little stash of books that you you get when you go to a certain place and cuddle up with them and read them and then leave them? That's a good question. And what was one of the bigger challenges of this of this mode of life is unfortunately not just a little collection of books, but a large stupa of books, <laughs> a pile of boxes <laughs> and mostly a little bit of other stuff like some cooking pots and stuff, but mostly many, many boxes of Dharma books. And I didn't know what to do when we were leaving Santa Cruz. Didn't want to pay for storage bin for indefinitely. A very kind friend had space in their garage and again, spontaneously offered, at least for a few years, you can, you can build a stupa of your Dharma <laughs> books in, in my garage. And so that's, that's where that is. And it's interesting because when, we, when I put it there in storage, I thought, well, I, I really need these Dharma books. <laughs> but of course, these days, probably all of them I also have in digital form. And I've just gotten really used to studying Dharma in digital form. So now I think of it as like these books would make a great Dharma library for a future Zen center. I don't really need them myself, actually. And, but, but moving out of a Zen center where for 10 years, I actually ended up accumulating stuff in Santa Cruz. So trying to decide what to pack into this car for originally we thought three months, what do we really need for three months? So some altar supplies and a few books and some robes. And, but that was part of this experiment was learning that actually that three months turned into a year and nothing was missed actually. And then that, that year turned into over two years now. And still now I'm, now I'm near Santa Cruz where these books are stored. I went there one time so far to kind of look through and it was, it was too much to even look for <laughs> specific books. So it is a great lesson of thinking like if, if someone had said, you're going to take everything that you need for a few years in your car. I would have said, no, this is, that's too much. I can't, I can't limit it down that much, but it's been a great lesson in like it, how it's been completely fine. Nothing's missing. I appreciate your saying that about the nothing missing. When I was at Tassajara for those seven years, people who lived there for a while, it is kind of like three months, like, oh, you're going to do the fall practice period for three months. Okay, I'll be here for three months. And then I may or may not do the winter. Oh, I'm here for the winter. And also 
leaving behind all my stuff. I had a, I had a house then, and I had a bunch of stuff in my garage, just a little room in the garage. But then you realize how much stuff you don't really need. At Tassahara, each person has a very tiny little room. And uh, often it's the case that you can't even really settle too much into your own room and make it your own because it's maybe every three months or half year or year anyway, you end up moving to a different room. Yeah, that's right. So it was a little bit of a wandering practice in that you often had a like a hermit crab just con- <laughs> you know carrying all your stuff up and down the monastic valley to different different places. And we have those garden carts at Tassajara. Yeah, exactly. so sometimes I would think of it, I, I don't want to have more stuff than I can fit in a garden cart to move to the next room. <laughs> yeah, there is there's something about that simplicity when you get to that bubble of Tassajara. As we've heard other people say, you start to be owned by your possessions. It's like you become a prisoner of those possessions. Yeah, there was time when I even thought, well, maybe I really can't leave Santa Cruz because I have to live with these books. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it's very freeing to kind of yeah. stir things up and let go of stuff and simplify. Are you in Shoho then just camping in the Prius in real campgrounds or the side of the road or just? Oh, yeah. Well, that's another part of the of this. It makes it more of a practice. The way we're doing it is we have this website called freecampsites.net, I think it is, which I highly recommend to people driving across the country and so on. And it's a, a kind of user-created guide to free campsites that people have found and they put in the GPS. So it's a kind of a map of the country. I think it's maybe other countries too. So we often would not plan where, you know, on a longer road trip section, not plan where we're going to be that night. And just when we start to get tired, just plug in the nearest town or try to make it, you know, another 50 miles and then see the free campsites there. click on it and it just gives you directions to get there. And so that was a, you know, the free campsites, of course, are sometimes down longer roads and, and very rustic, you know, there's no water and toilets and so on, often the woods or the desert, and, uh, but often beautiful places. Uh, and also regarding the, the free campsites.net, in America these days, everything is owned. It's either private property or state land or state parks. As a homeless person, you're not allowed to really legally be anywhere. But with a car, I think it may be necessary for most of these places. There, it's, it's amazing to me that there are no forests and BLM land that allows anyone to stay for usually up to two weeks in both of those types of land for free. And so like in the Buddha's time, probably before a lot of land was owned by anyone, there are ways to legally and comfortably be in America, land that allows one to be there. With regard to the term home leaving when somebody ordains as a Zen priest and the tradition back in the Buddha's day, even before the Buddha, of course, with the wandering ascetic holy men what's your understanding of the purpose of that type of practice or lifestyle and how do you feel that personally it has enriched your life and i was going to say your spiritual life but i mean to me those are just not one not two well first of all i i want to say that my current life is much more comfortable and secure than the, the Buddha's lifestyle and the, and the Theravada Tudong practice where it's really you maybe don't even have a tent and, and you just have a robe and a bowl. So this is, this is not nearly so challenging, I would say, but it's a little challenging for what I've been used to, especially as I get older. And uh, I think that the main intention from those the old days, the Shramana movement in India of wandering yogis and and somewhat my intention these days 
is to partly to simplify one's life so that one not only kind of gets down to the, the basics of, of life, but also allows more time for practice, for meditation and, and not being too busy, which is definitely like a disease of our modern culture. I think we get so caught up in doing too much. So it's, this is a way to simplify life. Partly we, we end up doing a lot because we need to earn this living. So if one is kind of living on the cheap a little bit, one doesn't need much income, especially, especially housing and lodging is, seems to be like by far the ridiculously most expensive thing that most people have to spend their earnings on. So if there's, if there's a free place to live, it really changes one's mode of life, I've discovered. So I think simplicity is part of it, but also working with, with our natural human need for security, security about you know basic needs like shelter and food, but also like the future, this thing of like having a plan, especially getting older. Like in my 20s, I was, you know, wandered around a lot and I always felt like, well, but I'm a young guy and I can... I'll settle down later, but now I'm at 55, which is not so old, but I do feel like that, well, what's going to happen the rest of my life? What about old age? And because I really don't have a plan beyond three months at this point. So I think it's like, you know, living in the present and trusting one's life to dependent arising and, and to kindness of others and to spontaneous happenings with the intention to practice and to share practice and teachings with others. So kind of, you know, poking a little bit at, at our grasping for some kind of security, which often means is future, like, you know, savings, uh, account insurance, what is it? IRA, these kinds of things. I don't know anything about this stuff. Sometimes I feel like I'm really actually maybe very stupid and I'm going to, I'm going to, pay the price for the stupidity at some point but at the same time it's very freeing so this it's this kind of dance between security and freedom i appreciate that reflection because like you mentioned clearly even your prius camping is much more comfortable than probably jetta grove <laughs> <laughs> vulture peak <laughs> and I'm curious, how is it in this wandering practice you have, how do you feel that it affects perception? As far as changing perception, I think it, it, it is more like easy to live in the present and, and be more spontaneous and meet the present a little more fully, I find, than when I'm, that when I'm kind of working through a plan and living out a plan that especially a fixed plan. And so something about the freshness and spontaneity living in the present, it's maybe a little bit different perception. I say it's giving up security and also stability, a kind of stability, which I think it can be helpful for Zen practice. It's good to have a stable life. And sometimes when it's really like a lot of traveling and not staying very long in one place, I feel like it's hard. It's harder to, you know, have a regular zazen practice. It's harder to do, you know, really settle into like longer retreats. So stopping for a while in places, I think, is that stability and settling is actually really good for practice, in a way. And I think earlier in my practice, I would I would have completely lost it in this kind of unstable, traveling kind of life. But at this point. It's a nice challenge. So neither you nor Shoho has health insurance or you do? Well, we have Medi-Cal. And I think most states have something like that very, very kindly. It's an interesting question for practitioners. I've talked to some practitioners who feel like, as practitioners, we shouldn't rely on Medi-Cal because we're burdening the state. We should take care of ourselves as practitioners. And then others would say, like, more like the Buddha's spirit, the Buddha was completely reliant on others. Maybe we'd say personal others rather than the state. But I think there were even in ancient India, there were some state-sponsored rest homes and for, for these pilgrims and sadhus and shramanas. 
So it's an interesting question. For me, the way I think of it is relying on that kind of kindness, both for, for health insurance, which is a big one, but also Donna for other expenses. I rely on just donations for Dharma teaching. And it's been enough to have a sustainable homeless life for a few years. I feel like as long as I'm offering something and giving something, which I think in the old Buddhist tradition, they would say just practicing, even if nobody knows about it, is an offering to the world. But I think even more so to be able to share the practice with others freely and then freely receive in a kind of kind of gift economy rather than a than a um, deal economy. Rather than a commodity economy. So would you talk and let people know about what prompted you to live at no abode, what no abode is, and what your practice was there? Yeah, it was, it was an experiment for some of us that were, had been living at Tassajara for some years and watched that cycle, uh, Tassajara Monastery of winter and summer, where winter is these two, three-month traditional ongo practice periods, mostly silent, a lot of meditation, a lot of Dharma teaching, study, wonderful, deep practice, really transformative practice I found and many found. And then the summer season, the guest season at Tassajara, which was the, the sustaining economic um, reality to keep Tassajara going. And of course, tried to maintain a, a sort of minimal zazen practice of a period in the morning and evening and a lot of people coming and going. And it felt to some of us like the, the winter practice momentum would get kind of dispersed in the summer and then we'd kind of rebuild it in the fall or get some head of steam going in the spring and then the summer would come again. So some of us thought, wouldn't it be great if we could have a place where we just, just keep going with that monastic practice period model throughout the year, like a Japanese monastery would be pretty much too. Somebody who was interested in this project actually had the funds to buy a house in Mill Valley. So she did that. And a few of us moved into this house that was near Green Gulch so that Tenshin Roshi could be the kind of guiding teacher of a group of hermit monastic types that would do this kind of training, tiny training temple kind of mode. So I was there for I think three and a half years, something like that. And other people came and went. I think the last few months, it was just me. And while you were there, you also didn't use any money. Is that correct? Was that one yeah, of the practices? So of yeah, I was trying to just live according to the Vinaya monastic precepts, which in the Buddhist time and still you know, some Theravada monks maybe don't keep this fully, but like the Thai forest tradition, for example, keeps the precept of not using money at all. That was a very interesting practice for a few years. I had a little bit of savings and I just gave it away. So I didn't have any savings backup. Of course, it's different than being completely homeless because, you know, parents and I could go back to Zen Center at any time, which I did. But for that time, I really couldn't, didn't have the autonomy really is what I learned about it to do things that I wanted. So the, I think the main effect of not, having money or being able to use money was that <laughs> it made my life again very very simple like I just I couldn't go to a movie I couldn't go to shopping I couldn't do almost anything except be in nature and walk and sit and for me it was wonderful because it's what I wanted to do it really encouraged that practice of not doing anything else so much you know, relies on money. I think even to like go into San Francisco, I'd have to have to get a ride. Or I think some of the Vinaya monks do things like they won't use money itself because there's a little more choice in it, but they'll receive, if somebody gives them like a plane ticket, they can use a plane ticket. Some might argue that that's too indulgent, but in a way it's like, also it's, also it's kind of giving a privacy. If we have money, we kind of, can get the things we want and no one knows about it. So there's, there's one of a guideline about you can have a steward, which is like if you really want some per certain thing, the steward has a little fund that people can donate to and they can get you something, but you have to ask them. So it's like, I want a chocolate bar. If I, it's kind of a confession. I have to 
ask the steward for a chocolate bar. So I usually, I wouldn't do that. But a, a few times I was like a Dharma book that I felt I really needed to look at. I, I had this steward playing that role. If you, if you have some donations, could you pick up this Dharma book? But it was privacy and autonomy that comes with, with money. I got to really learn that without that, it's kind of a different life. When you're saying that about autonomy and money and privacy, it just, of course, brings to mind class, you know, classes and the different levels of classes in the United States, which I would say, who knows really if there's as much class mobility as there used to be. I'm not a sociologist, but you're getting, you, you got a little bit of the flavor of, oh, I'm not like, I don't have agency. Yeah, agency. As you bring this up about class, one story comes to mind from that time at Noah Bode that really stuck with me. Eventually, we discovered that in Mill Valley, there was this fruit stand, these Guatemalan brothers that didn't even speak English, but they had this fruit stand at like Tam Junction. And we would, we would walk from Noah Bode down around Mill Valley with our big bamboo hats and straw sandals and an orioki bowl, and we would collect alms in front of Whole Foods usually. And <laughs> one story there is that we would be like wanting sustenance. We so we would be hoping we would get things like rice and beans, but people would give things like chocolate from Whole Foods because they thought we were, it was a cute thing we were doing. We're like, it's nice, but actually, we, of course, we couldn't say because part of the practice is not asking chocolate but really some rice would be great <laughs> so that's it was part of it but then this other story of these Guatemalan brothers we discovered that there was a certain day of the week where they just threw out their overripe produce and so we just arranged to go there and pick up bagfuls of of like fruit that's about to rot and they'd be happy to give it to us they they, they were you know catholic but we tried to somewhat explain they, they understood that it was a kind of a religious practice and they were really happy to do it. And we were, we learned this Takahatsu verse in Spanish to recite to them. And it was a nice connection. But then there was this one homeless man in Mill Valley. He might've been the only one in Mill Valley because it's a very wealthy town. And he lived like under the bridge right near this fruit stand. And we would walk under this bridge to, to get there. So we pass him and, uh, I remember we'd go by, we'd walk by him with these empty bags, and then we'd come back with these bags full of fruit, and we'd stop and try to give them to him. He was kind of paranoid, like, I don't want your fruit. I, don't try to convert me. I think now we're <laughs> missionaries. No, you can just have some fruit. Yeah. And then uh, walking away thinking like, wow, here's this guy who's like, also needs food. And uh, it's such a different context. He's He's a homeless person, but He's not kind of respectfully going to this, to these brothers as a kind of practice and sort of obvious spiritual practice where they're happy to do this. I think if he went to them, it might be different. Mm. And it struck me how we're these two different types of homelessness. And we were in like lower, lower class for sure, but of course could step out of it more easily than most homeless to be sure. But, but living somewhat in this moneyless way but how different it was when it was intentional with a practice and with precepts around it and with not asking and with trying to take care of the world around us at the same time, how different it was. It speaks to many things, right? Class and classism, privilege. And of course, you don't know what the Guatemalan brothers, how they would respond to the man under the bridge. But it is, it is pretty interesting because there's also a way in which since you and the other monastics who were practicing that way at that time, there's also a different air. I mean, you're not really desperate. You're, yeah, you're, you're not yeah. needy. You're not mentally ill like some or drug addicted, like many people who are on the streets. Of course, it's, it's a phenomenal practice, this practice of asceticism, the wandering, practicing without using money, because it does chip away at the egos grasping onto, like you said, certainty and stability. And it's got to be this way. It has to be that way. Otherwise, I'm not going to be happy. And especially as Buddhist practitioners, 
it's interesting how far things have come since the Buddha's time, and even in Asian monasteries that are quite comfortable in many ways. It's worth looking at in modern American Buddhism, these parts of the practice that the Buddha set up that he felt were, were really integral to this lifestyle was not just something he happened to be doing, but I think it was like the demonstration of his understanding of Dharma and how, how can we keep that in mind as living in, in modern world of practice? Of course, in the Buddhist time, there were the monastics and the lay people, and the Buddha didn't say that the lay people should leave their homes and families, but he, he did have this order of people that almost was like maybe sort of implied it was a, a fast track was to, was to leave home and really challenge all the kind of unconscious attachments. I found that after I left my nine to five job and went to the monastery, all this synchronous stuff was either always happening and I wasn't paying attention to it because I was always in my office staring at my computer, or you just become more aware of it. Like you're saying, oh, we were going to do this. And then this was, this happened. And then we got to do that. And then this happened. And then we got to do this. And I remember the same kind of synch synchronicity when I stepped out of that structure of the nine to five world. Uh, in so many other ways, my life just blossomed or life just blossomed through me in unexpected ways. That was yes. very enlivening. Yes, enlivening. One way to think of it is surrendering to dependent arising. Dependent arising is out of control. It's the whole universe is, is happening moment to moment. Everything that's happening is arising due to other conditions. And we can't figure it out. We can't see where it's going. We can trace little bits and pieces of where it's coming from. But it's, it's like this ocean of, of impermanent flux and interdependence, really, by simplifying life and giving up some autonomy. We actually like enter more fully into the, maybe the perception of this interdependent arising of things. When we're, when we're, it seems like we're more in control of our life and how things are going. Of course, it's still all dependent arising, but it, it seems to become less vibrant, maybe more predictable. But mm -hmm. surrendering to dependent arising is also surrendering to interconnection with others and our, our interdependence with others. I also think of in the Buddha's time, when the Buddha set up these precepts like like the monastic precept of not storing food overnight that you mentioned earlier. My understanding is that it was partly to give up autonomy, but also it was so that the, the monastics would have to live near a town and go out for alms every day to have food every day so that they would have interaction with people. They couldn't just go into a long retreat, actually, unless they had like a lay person with them that could offer them food every day. So that the Buddhists, I think, saw this interrelationship, dependent arising, the beauty of uh, being in community, lay people and monastics co-supporting each other in that way. I think it's very beautiful. And bits and pieces of that spirit, I think we taste just by giving up some autonomy. To your point about resting or feeling dependent co-arising more. And maybe that's another word for synchronicity in some ways, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, this is arising in this moment and feeling more like life is flowing through you rather than Heather or Kokyo, we're imposing our will and we're designing everything. Because when you, when all those material crutches, if you will, or security nets start to dissolve because of the way you're living as a wandering priest here, the ego starts to scramble around. <laughs> what can I make certain? <laughs> let me put the, let me put my food in the fridge so that I know there's going to be a tomorrow. But that just suffuses the body. I think that feeling of being out in nature, not having the structure, not having stability, living more in a bare bones way. It's nice that you mentioned nature too. We haven't really talked about that, but within this these past few years of wandering, partly it's just my preference for living in rural areas over the city. In a way, thick, big cities are kind of designed around this autonomy kind of system. 
So it's a little hard, I think, when homeless people living in the cities, which is actually where most homeless people live, they're, they're really hard to, to fit into that system that's so based on everyone's got their autonomy and got their thing worked out. But these people who don't have that, they really struggle in a world that's designed for autonomy and stability. But being in nature is, is a wonderful practice in itself, I think, that dependent arising is tends to be more, maybe more apparent to most people in nature because, because it's not created by humans that have this structure and structuring intentions. I remember saying once to my teacher about trusting the Dharma, like a bird trusts the sky. The nice. bird is not saying, okay, wait, hold on. I'm going to step off the branch. What's going to happen? Where am I going to be? Is that, is the sky really going to hold me? And of course you'd say, all right, well, Heather, that's kind of silly. Well, you wouldn't say this, but other people might. It's a bird. Of course, the bird's consciousness is different from human consciousness. Yes and no. <laughs> so that sense of immediacy, that sense of trusting what's in front of us and the physicality rather than the conceptuality right? That we humans are so good at getting caught up in, you know? That, that's a wonderful image. Yeah. Like the baby bird, even being pushed, I think, by the mother off the branch and in falling, they're given their wings and take to the sky. This Japanese Soto Zen priest I met at Tassahara a while back, he told me this wonderful phrase, go cloud, run water. That's how monks should be go cloud, run water. And I really mm -hmm. like that poetic image. It's like the cloud on the water, the reflection of the cloud on the water, it's everything's constantly moving. And, and back to nature, we feel that more in nature. At the monastery at Tassahara, there's always a creek running past. So you see, you feel, you become part of the movement of nature. Yes, like that Japanese term for for monastics of unsui, clouds and water. And I think that's exactly the image of you're being carried along like the clouds move through the sky by the wind and like the, the water running through the stream. You're surrendering to the flow of nature. Before you became unsui, you were a deadhead. And so wandering around <laughs> seems to be part of your makeup. It's true. That, that, was, that was definitely a, a nomadic community and a very loose-knit nomadic community. Although there was kind of a purpose, which was to get to the next show. How many Grateful Dead shows did you see? When it got to be over 200, I think I stopped counting. <laughs> and was that just through your 20s and 30s or when did you stop? Yeah, really actually um, 20s. It was from like 80 six to 89 so all those shows were just within like three or four years so i would often be on tour which meant having a volkswagen bus with some friends and going from you know maybe 15 shows in a tour often on the east coast up and down it was in a way quite similar i think without even knowing about this old buddha tradition of of wandering, it, it created definitely a lifestyle of spontaneity and insecurity and oh, freedom. Freedom, I think, is I think also going back to what was the Buddha's intention. I think it was really in in the practice of Buddha Dharma, we're looking for this inner freedom that doesn't depend on outer circumstances and can be found in any situation in the country or the city, in in a nine to five job, in a out in the forest. That's the the inner freedom we're looking for. But I think it's it's not coincidence that the Buddha's kind of like outer lifestyle kind of like aligned or represented or expressed the Buddha's inner freedom. The Buddha lived this way when he was completely awakened. He could have had any lifestyle, but he chose the lifestyle of homeless wandering when he was completely free from suffering in any situation according to our understanding of Buddha. Yeah, I think that's a helpful way to look at it. Because as you were saying about 
experiencing inner freedom in any circumstance. While I agree with you, and I've had, especially at the monastery, many, many moments of that, whatever job I happen to be in, I find it more challenging to actually be in an office job, even though I'm living at the San Francisco Zen Center, and I'm not looking for promotions, and I'm not making a ton of money, so there's not like this pressure in that way of having to perform, and yet it's still a little deadening, the one-dimensional lack of sensory experience uh, day in and day out. And Unlike, you know, a narrow focus on specific tasks, which I think it's good to have that capacity in practice too, but that being able to really open to the vastness. Did you know the story of Mingyur Rinpoche? No, no, I don't. Tell me. He's one of my Tibetan teachers. And he, uh, you know, they have this three-year retreat tradition in Tibetan Buddhism that's usually in a monastery or in a retreat hut with supporters bringing the food and or a group of people supported by the monastery. And uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, in maybe his 30s or 40s, kind of young teacher, had done one of these three-year retreats already. And after some years of, of teaching and guiding a monastery in Nepal, he wanted to do another, but he had heard about this practice of wandering retreat. It's more like this Thai Chudong practice. And so he, he decided to do a three-year. I think he, he went without knowing how long it would be. He really went in this unplanned way. He did this in, in India and Nepal. In India and maybe Nepal for several years and, and really kept moving, didn't stay anywhere and went from, you know, would go north in the summers up into the mountains, the foothills of Himalayas, and then south in the winter down into India. And amazing. I mean, <laughs> that's it. That's, I think, the real wandering retreat. Not like what I'm doing is, you know, traveling around. He has a wonderful book, In, in Love with the World, I think In it's Love called. with the World. Okay, I was wondering how to spell his name. M-I-N-G-Y-U-R. And, and then they made it, he made a documentary about the book and kind of like went back to some of the places that he wandered and very beautiful places. But he had many adventures, almost died at least once. So as you were saying this, I was like, oh, I feel just like fear. Like the idea of letting go or being a wandering priest. Of course, I, I am married as you are, but just that was a little bit of a, ooh, what that, a little bit of the fear of the future that doesn't exist, I understand. And yeah, yet, yeah, yeah, yeah and, and, yet. <laughs> and yet capitalism, the lack of a social net that actually really supports people. Capitalism is obviously a very fear-based, classist. The system is all about productivity and accumulation. Spending time in India and Nepal, it's really interesting seeing the aging elders. Is, you know, usually they'd be taken care of by their family, but there's some without either were rejected by their family or their family's gone. And so like Mother Teresa, her place is in in India. And uh, I volunteered a, a few times at one of her places in Nepal. And very moving to see what in a very poor country with people who really have nothing at all, they're still taken care of. Not everybody is. I think they, they didn't have enough room for old street people of Nepal to come into a place like that. People have been doing this for since there have been humans, people getting old and dying. In, in Varanasi, too, watching the people often come there to die, older people, because it's a sacred place to die and be burned on the banks of the Gandhis. And I remember walking into one building, there was just this empty stone room with all of these really old women that were just like kind of waiting to die. And I think people brought them food a couple of times a day, and they're just lying on the stone floor. And they seemed like that was just their life. They came with nothing, and they were had made it to the sacred place, we're happy to be there. And then you might feel like, well, Kokyo's living this simple life in his Prius. And, and, and then I would see these people at the, you know, camping sometimes with a giant RV, Winnebago, right? It's like a whole home. It's like bringing a whole home out camping. Right, There's and TV, they have TV set. TV, kitchen, <laughs> bathroom, you know, 
even towing a car behind it. <laughs> so there's that end of the spectrum. And then there's the other end of the spectrum. And maybe we're all somewhere in the middle. When you're in a certain system like capitalism or a certain class structure, which of course, you know, that's around the world, a class system, even if it's not as delineated as the Indian caste system. Well, I think just capitalism really, it's made for competition. It's made for productivity. It's made for scarcity. And if it's you not made for homeless people. Yeah. And it's also not made for artists. It's not made for yeah. anybody, people who are just not interested or that, yeah, people who are just not interested in that type of life. It's very difficult to live in this capitalist society where everything is about earning money, making money, the more money, the better, the more cars, the better, the bigger house, the better. So there's this tremendous scarcity mentality. Well, also that the, the spiritual practice like Buddhism in America, we think it's a, it's our life. So it's, it's a major thing, but it's this tiny, strange offshoot of society that people really don't understand. I mean, maybe Bay Area, California is, is starting to understand it a little bit more, but, but when it, thinking back to like the Buddha's time, that society was, this is the highest ideal to be a shramana, to be a wandering yogi. And society, even with whatever capitalism they had going, people were still trying to get ahead and become wealthy. But still, it was seen as like, these people are worthy of taking care of because mm. this is the highest ideal of the human life to practice and realize reality and keep that alive for generations to come. The homeless wanders in Buddhist time and, and even in Asian countries today are supported and honored in their simple life in, in a way so different from anything in this country. We just don't have that concept. Yes, in, in the sure. capitalist uh, kind of Puritan work ethic society where it's like, well, that's all well and fine, but you better work for your living because nobody gets a free lunch here. Kokio, do you have any closing words for people who are listening to this podcast? May we all fully appreciate the vast, inconceivable boundlessness of now and really take refuge in it and in, enjoy it for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, Kokio, for that heartfelt, inspiring closing. I really appreciate it. It's a helpful reminder to this former monk. Thank you for listening to the Spark Zen podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Spark Zen Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Cantu and Alexis Georgopoulos. <laughs>